1: Welcome to Money Making Conversations. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. It is important to understand that everybody travels a different path to success. That's because your brand is different. The challenges you're facing in your life are different. So I I tell everybody, you need to stop uh, reading other people's success stories and really start writing your own, because it's important to understand that that's their story. And their story means nothing to you because they travel a different path to get there. But I want you to be motivated by their success because their stories can offer you direction and also a plan. But it has to be your plan. In order to get there, it has to be through your committed effort and, again, your planning. My next guest is a planner, an activist. She's a lot of things, but more importantly, Laree Daniel Favors is on my show. Laurie Daniel Favors is an activist, radio host, author, and attorney with a long-standing commitment to racial and social justice. She currently serves as an interim executive director at the Center for Law and Social Justice. There's a lot going on today, y'all, from politics to economics to social, civil, and civil unrest on both sides. I like to believe Attorney Favors is on my show to talk about it and the upcoming inauguration. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, Laurie Daniel Favors did I get it out correctly Larissa?
2: you did sir you did indeed and thank <laughs> you so much for having me it's an honor to be here
1: well priest first of all you know knowing your schedule knowing your background let's 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 get into your background because I'd always like to tell people you know you 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 are a uh, radio host so you a lot of times with Sears XM your voice is heard there what what direction do you want to take your career and all your brand <laughs>
2: You know, it's interesting. I remember when I was a a little girl, I actually wanted to be a doctor. I had no interest Mm -hmm. in the law whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I had this dream that I was going to be I was going to deliver babies um, for communities uh, that I wanted to live in, black communities largely. And I, I planned on having a clinic where I would deliver the babies of the mothers. The mothers would enroll their children into classes that I had I was going to have at this clinic. And then the mothers would work in the clinic with me and we would create in in my seven year, eight year old mind. I was literally trying to think of a cooperative uh healthcare service that was going to be able to meet the needs uh, of people in my community. Uh, I stuck with that dream for a really long time. And I'm Gen X. Uh, And I grew up in a time where girls not being good at math and science was still kind of a thing. Like we didn't have Doc McStuffins when I was little. Uh, My Mm -hmm. daughter has that now. Her her possibilities are completely Mm -hmm. wide open. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I did not get along well with math or science. And so (laughs) I realized that uh, the doctoring field was probably not going to be where I ended up staying in in the medical community. Um, When I was 17 years old, one of my uncles took me to hear a civil rights speaker, Mm -hmm. an attorney, uh, Alton Maddox. And I believe it was at the Slave Theater in, in New York City. And I was completely enraptured with everything that this man had to say. He was speaking a lot of truth to fire. He was speaking to all of the issues that I'd cared about. You know, my, my parents raised me to be very um, engaged with what was happening in our community. You know, loving Black people proactively was really a part of my education as a child. Um, and when I heard him speak, I said, OK. I'm gonna have to let go of this clinic idea because math and science <laughs> and I are not getting along. I'm going to law school and I'm going to use right. the law to make black people's lives better in some way, shape, or form. And that's sort of the track and the trajectory that I've been on ever since. Um, I've been engaged in community activism since my days in college. Uh, my friends and I put together an organization that, you know, decades later is still in existence. And as far as where I want my career to go, I definitely see it on that path. Using my my passion, using my training as an attorney. Um, And as someone who has an expertise in racial justice to really create an environment and an opportunity to where we are setting our own tables, we are able to bring our own chairs, prepare our own food. And then we can invite other people to our table instead of needing to constantly feel as though we have to be invited to someone else's. Uh, So that's you know, I I don't know what that means in terms (laughs) of next moves I would make politically or or professionally. But that's certainly the trajectory I see myself on.
1: Well, first of all, my degree is in mathematics. So, you know, just let you know that don't beat me up. (laughs) <laughs> and my, But my minor is very similar to yours in sociology, because I have mm. a strong emphasis in African-American studies. Yeah. And I tell everybody, uh, if I had to do it all over again, I would have minored in sociology, because African-American studies changed my life.
3: Because yeah, I realized
1: what, what was... School is really a, a farce, because they don't teach you or tell you the true reality. And that's why Confederate flags are cool in the South, because if you actually did the proper education and show the Jim Crow processes and how blacks really contributed to this world, then white people would be ashamed to mm. hang those flags in the South. How did African American studies have an impact on your life?
2: You know, I think that's a great question because what I actually have come to believe is that every black college student, and, and it's a shame that it takes getting to college to get access to this information, right? You know, my husband and I often talk about the fact that, you know, we have all these professional degrees and Outside of my Africana studies degree, uh, which I majored in in college, I really had no other space in my education that prepared me for what it is that I'm doing today. And I feel as though every Black student who is so privileged to be able to go to college needs to either double major in African and African American studies or minor in it if it's not their primary major. And I think it's important because we don't just need political scientists. We need political scientists who know how to take the wisdom of one of the best political scientists, Marcus Garvey, and fuse them with what our issues are today. We don't just need entrepreneurs. We need entrepreneurs who can tap into the genius that Booker T. Washington did have. I know that, you know, there's some controversy there, but he was on to something. He and (laughs) W.E.B. Du Bois. There shouldn't have been a debate because we needed both of what they had to say. But we need entrepreneurs who are able to take the Booker T. Washington uh, approach to trade and to skills development and marry it with the job needs that we have in our community right now. We don't just need black medical doctors. We need black medical doctors who have an expertise in the health conditions uh, and the environment that produce the health outcomes uh, that black communities find ourselves in. Why? Because we need them to build hospitals. We need them to to lead research. We need them to engage in in the types of study that is going to center our physical needs. We, We don't just need Black bankers and financiers. We need Black bankers and financiers who understand Black economics and who can take a Claude Anderson's method, who can look at... Uh, message, who can look at uh, what it means to have a legacy of Black banking and recognizing the limitations of focusing solely on Black banking within a a racially driven capitalist system and create economic models that are going to not only uh, empower us through employment, but how do we grow wealth within a society where we are at the bottom and having to pull ourselves up? We need Black professionals who aren't just Black professionals. We don't just need people getting jobs and great paychecks. We need them to have the knowledge that is going to be necessary to create solutions so that our community can get the benefit. And so I would encourage every parent, if you have children who, is, who are looking to go into college, whether they're going to an HBCU or a PWI, majoring in Africana studies is one of the best things they can do. In even if, if it's a double major, even if it's a minor, quite frankly, right. uh, because we don't have, as you said, any spaces where we're able to learn this history. And when you don't know who you are, and and Marcus Garvey tells us, the people who are without knowledge of their history, without knowledge of their past, their culture, their origins are like trees with no roots. And we do not have the luxury of having Black uh, excellence and intellectual prowess that is not grounded in that history so that they are producing the solutions that our people can benefit
3: from. It's finally here, the season of celebration. And no matter how you celebrate with family and friends,
1: well, here's the beauty of conversation we're about to have, because of being in, I, I, I minor in sociology. You majored in. You got a degree, BA in African and African-American studies. Your minors in Spanish language. I yes. must admit, I'm very limited in that conversation. So we won't even go there. We won't go there. We'll go there. Even though I grew up in Houston, Texas. Now, Booker T. Washington, because you brought him up. I wasn't going to bring him up in this conversation because he's renowned in the Black community. But when you hear his story... He felt that black people were should be subservient in my tone and my learnings to white people, because mm-hmm. white people they can get great maids, they get great mechanics, all and that's what W. B. Du Bois had issues with him, because he felt that sure you're educating African Americans or black people or Negroes at the time, but you're telling them that's all they could do when wb the boys was saying we should be able to do anything you know in in conversation am i right in that assessment in comparison you learned it your way i learned it my way but 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 booker t washington really in some ways was a disappointment even though he had the voices of all the all the right white people the rich ones the Rockefellers, they all went to him for information and so when he told them this is what black people can do it so in some ways it created a, uh, an image of our We weren't unlimited in our opportunities. Mm. We were limited in our opportunities based on his conversations.
2: So I think that what you raise is a really good point. And I love the juxtaposition between Du Bois and Booker Mm -hmm. T. Washington. And I think it's important that we recognize that a lot of times in history, you have these these massive debates between these giants of our history. And if you're able to pull back a bit and bring yourself back from the the trees to look at the individual tree to look at the whole forest, what we see is often there are truths in every single one of their arguments, many of them, right? For Booker T. Washington, advocating the truth the routes to trades Advocating the, the use of our hands, manual labor. For him, I think what he was saying is that even if we take this college route, even if we get our students into college, and at that time, you know, Carter G. Woodson tells us a lot about the early era of, of educating Black people in this country. And Carter G. Woodson, in his book, The Miseducation of the Negro, he talks a lot about the fact that you've got Black people in school who are learning Latin, they're learning Greek history, mm-hmm. they're becoming professors of, you know, the great Romance <laughs> languages, you know, things of that nature. And yet, the peanut farmer, who is an immigrant who cannot speak English, can come to this country, having just got here last month, open up a peanut cart and will go become rich by selling to those of us Black people who are off in colleges learning the trades and learning the great romance languages. And I mm-hmm. think what, what we find that kind of brings each of those three men and their bodies of thought together is the idea that yes, we need people who are able to go off into the humanities and to study uh, uh, what it means to, uh, to engage in philosophy but if the philosophy is western philosophy right. and if the philosophy is harmfully uh, exclusionary to black interests and to the black existence then that philosophy and black people majoring in that type of philosophy for their academic study does us a disservice i i think that when we're looking at where we're at right now today i have a very good friend of mine uh, who's a, a phenomenal, uh brilliant guy, finance. And, you know, he's done a lot of work in the finance industry. He's a VP at one of the big banks. And, you know, my husband and I, we were at lunch with a friend of ours and, and he's there and we're introducing them and realizing they work at the same bank. You know, both of them are VPs <laughs> at the same bank. And we're like, oh, well, you guys must already know each other. You're both at the same. And, and, and they didn't know each other. And one mm-hmm. of them laughs and says, you know, we might all be black and we might all be bankers, but too many black people gathered in the, at the water cooler makes a lot of our white colleagues nervous. And, you know, we laughed it off and it was a ha ha ha. But later on, it struck me that we have these two examples of brilliant black men who have mm-hmm. done everything that we have asked of them. They've gone on to school. They've got successful jobs. They're, they're making their way, making good money, donating to the community. And yet, even with being masters in their profession, they were limited in their ability to even bring their requisite areas of of expertise together to build something that our community could benefit from. Mm -hmm. And right now we're in an area and an environment where you have uh, the numbers of our people who are in the criminal justice system or criminal justice involved as compared to college students are comparable. Right now we have a reality where Uh, Most of us who are Black professionals, who are employed uh, in in white institutions and white-owned spaces, um, we're often the last hired, which means that whenever rounds of of, uh, reductions in force come about, we're mm -hmm. often the first fired. We are Mm -hmm. in an environment where we have to sue corporate entities to hire enough of us, and we have to hold over these corporate entities the threat that by not hiring us and not having diverse workspaces, they will then have to face uh, some sort of, of accusations of discrimination. If we are talking about an economy that is largely based on Black students mastering the skills of whiteness, that Latin, that Greek, uh, learning uh, how to present in a way that's going to make our teachers uh, believe in us and not fear us by the time we transition from third grade to fourth grade, uh, that year in between where a lot of Black boys go from being cute little Tyrone to, oh my gosh, Tyrone is making me nervous. You're so big and (laughs) aggressive. Maybe you should be in special ed, right? We have an environment where our economic success models require Black children to master uh, white knowledge in it and present it in a way that is acceptable to white people so that we make them comfortable enough that they will then hire us, uh, give us entree into their economic pathways to success. I think when we look back at the history between Du Bois and, Wa- and Booker T. Washington, and, and think about what lessons we can learn from that. We need to be able to use trade as well as academic uh, pathways to success in a way that is going to remove a lot of the pressures that come from having to take the only pathway to success that our community has largely globbed onto, which is making white people comfortable enough to work in these spaces. We need trades, we need black plumbers. Right now, right. I could be making six figures as a plumber, but I was told I needed to master uh, these particular skills. I'm glad I did. I'm glad I went to law school, I'd be mm-hmm. a terrible plumber. but the reality is there's economic freedom in the trades. There's economic freedom in vocational pathways. We don't all need to go to college. All of us are not going to go to college. I want my children to go. Yes. I hope they do go. Yes. But I have to recognize that we are living in an environment where we need both. And it's not an either or. And we have to be able to recognize that there must be multiple pathways to success for our community, because frankly, not all of these pathways are large enough to hold all of the genius that we have. in. But
1: but, that's not the question that W. B. Du Bois had an issue with his issue with Booker T. Washington. You know this was he felt that he was very powerful. He had the ear. He had the ability to communicate and say we can do more. He fe- he presented an example. That's all we could do. All yeah. we could do was work with our hands. That was right. a struggle. And that was the issue that he had in hand. And I don't want to, you know, this interview has more to talk about than Booker G, something that happened many years ago. But I do want to make a comment on something that you talked about. Your know, two VP friends at the bank who had never met. And they were talking about too many black people. In 1986, I was still working at IBM. Mm-hmm. I, as an executive, and that was the same statement we would make in 1986, and wow. it's really tragic that 34 years later, in a conversation with you, I'm he's having the same, and he, they're VPs, and so that means that within the corporate structure, the way you walk, is still hasn't changed because mm-hmm. we would say, you know, jokes like, you know, five black people together—that's a basketball team. You know, huddle up, you, know, hey brother, you need to, you need to talk and pass at the same time. Don't slow down. Don't go to the bathroom at the same. Time. All those statements we made in 1986 are being still being made today. But then we see that the white people or the white person feels they are becoming a minority. And so now they're troubled by this. And they're troubled by the words like cancel culture when you talk about removing Confederate flags. And so you're, you know, you interim executive director for law and social justice. When you look at Council culture being tied to the Confederacy, removal of the flags. And we see people walk around here tearing down buildings and putting up Confederate flags and want to keep them on their car. What do you stand and how does that make you feel?
2: Well, you know, I, I believe that people use every opportunity that they can to show you who they really are. And when that happens, as the great Maya Angelou and others have said, we should believe them, right? And we gotta remember the Confederate flag uh, really was uh, came back into uh, American popular culture is a response to the civil rights movements, which were fighting Mm -hmm. uh, for freedom for black people. They didn't pop up, spring up right after the Civil War. We really see them coming back uh, to assist the growth of groups in the early 1900s, uh, like the Daughters of the Confederacy, like the Ku Klux Klan. We see these Confederate statues going up in, in states that had no connection to the Confederacy. Some places that weren't even in existence when there was the Civil War. Uh, some states that weren't in existence in, when there was a Civil War. Yet they're putting up these Confederate statues and monuments, not as an ode to history, all history, but as an ode to a particular angle of history Um, and as a way of centering, uh, and, you know, we call it the Southern heritage. Yes, Southern heritage, which was centered on the preservation of slavery and the preservation of the social hierarchy, um, which allowed slavery to continue. So we often think about slavery in terms of free labor, which it absolutely was, but slavery was also about the social status that white people held in a superior position over black people in an inferior position. So when it comes to cancel culture, you know, I I'm a believer that cancel culture is really just people recognizing that there are sometimes you have to be accountable for the things that you've said. And there are people out there who agree or disagree. And if they disagree, they are no longer required to pay you attention. Um, And so I think that we should apply that same thing uh, to cancel culture uh, or to the Confederacy and and the Confederate flag, which we are now seeing waving everywhere, including uh, from inside the Capitol building, which is quite a feat considering uh, the rebels themselves were not able to accomplish that.
1: Absolutely. Now we, we, we talk about moving ahead and look at the, um, the inauguration coming up um January twentieth, and you look at so much that has happened in 2020 from a standpoint of HBCUs, I guess, being recognized because of the donations that have come their way. Finally, people feel they're academic institutions and maybe they won't sit around talking about do we should we send money over there? What are they doing over there? They're educating the best students and Corporate leaders in America. That's what they're doing at HBCUs. Right. Now, when I talk about the inauguration, and you know what I'm going to is uh, Kamala Harris and her role. You're an African American female. How do you put all this in perspective, Ms. Daniel? Favors?
2: You know, it's interesting because um, I often have conversations with my friends. You know, we, we are now parents, right? <laughs> so yes. we mm-hmm. all have kids. And we're having these conversations about where we want to see our children go to school. And I've noticed a shift. Whereas at one point I had a lot of friends who, you know, would say, oh, I would like for my kids to, you know, to at least interview at an HBCU, they should do a tour. But, you know, the the PWI is gonna prepare you for real life. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? And, you know, Mm -hmm. I I want them to go to a predominantly white institution um, because that's where they're gonna really learn uh, how to get along, they're gonna learn how to apply the skills in the real world. And I think that Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, HBCU grad, uh, newly elected Democrat uh, a senator from the state of Georgia, Raphael Warnock, HBCU grad. The Queen of the South, Stacey Abrams, HBCU <laughs> grad. I think these three folk and so many more have completely put to death the lie that an HBCU is not a healthy space for black children to be educated. And so, you know, I am thrilled about this shift in conversation, this paradigm shift. You know, I, I, wa- I oh my God, I wanted to go to HBCU. So but ever since school days and a different world, like what child <laughs> growing up in the 80s did not want to go to an HBCU? I couldn't afford one. And PWIs gave me scholarship money, which is where I went, which is kind of how we see a lot of these things happening. So, you know, you mentioned the donations that these colleges are getting. I am so excited about what this means for expanding opportunities to, for scholarship for Black students. And I think that we're seeing an increase in, in donations to HBCUs from alum and from those of us who were just looking from the outside, looking in, waving, wishing we could have got in, but recognizing the value of the institution. I don't donate to my alma mater, my undergrad. I donate to HBCUs. Um, And so I think that we are seeing a real shift in, in understanding about the importance of centering ourselves, centering our discourse. And, you know, even our conversation earlier about the boys versus Washington, we have to, there's so much excellence and we have to have a critical eye towards how we're moving and, and informed by history. So we can look back and say, I understand what the elder was doing. The elder was wrong in this particular instance, yes. but here's the nugget I can take out of what he or she was advocating for. And here's how we can plant that seed and water it differently and nurture it differently and produce a different kind of tree. And I think that what we're seeing right now, you know, I, I believe firmly in the principle of Sankofa, which is a West African principle that says, our. it really speaks to the point of the need for our history being centered and revered because it informs our present and it lays the pathways for us going forward. And the paradigm shift that we are having right now is grounded on a recognition that our past is our present. What we saw happening in Washington DC <laughs> uh, <laughs> during the certification of the votes, that is America's history front and center in the Mm -hmm. present. And so we right now have a phenomenal opportunity to center ourselves differently. We've got 57 years of integrated American history that we can factor into our analysis. Uh, That was data that our early ancestors and newly freed uh, enslaved persons didn't have. What can we do with this information? What Mm -hmm. can we do with the expectations that we have now? And how do we ensure that we're creating a different set of opportunities for our children? I think that conversation is wide open and I am, I'm so excited to have Senator uh, or Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, sort of the symbol of that, because it really does mean that we can now begin thinking in different ways about not only what is power, but how we choose to access it and what pathways we choose to get there.
1: She's an activist. She's a radio host. She's an author. She's an attorney. You know, the great thing about when I, when I look at your plan, first of all, I love you to death. I'm a fan. Okay, Thank you. your animation, your animated, behaved tone. I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm always watching you morph into an animated because you're just so passion, but then you deliver it with such a uh, informed information. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really usually I talk a lot more. But I'm just enjoying listening you talk because, like they say, you're spitting fire with information <laughs> attached to it, and I'm not go break in with a water hose and drop all that knowledge with some ignorance just because I feel like talking. <laughs> You're a special young lady. I'm glad, I, I I hope you consider coming back on the show because I'm trying to create a voice for HBCU. I'm trying to create a voice for black people, a platform where they can come and speak and realize that you are a star. Not so much that, you know, that the Denzel Washington star, you know, you are the new stars the people who the, the 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 people who are moving information the people who are moving values that's why it was really fun to have a really soft debate with you about Booker T Washington W.B. the boards. I'm going I know you not you don't have that much op- that often because I realized that that's what I go back when I talk about people who set information for you I didn't find that out until I, about Booker T Washington until I was later in life because yeah. people were delivering information that they felt was valuable to you now as you and that's all you learn in African-American studies. Information is, and I will tell you this, I was brought to tears when I realized what I didn't know and what I was denied. Mm. I was denied an opportunity to learn history. Because if you look at history that they teach you in traditional white schools, or they're all white schools. So just when you're in under education, it's about they brought us over, they enslaved us, they let us go free. Then they then they drop all. They jump past the Jim Crow and all that violence they did when we had an opportunity to see. Then we get up to Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm-hmm. Then we go to the I had a dream speech. Then we do the civil rights voting act. Then the Martin Luther King assassination. And they stop talking about black people. That's it. Let's start talking about black people. And that's what we have to do now is talk about black people. Talk about why we have a right. And we start talking about law and social justice. You are for a leader. And I just wanted to bring you on the show and introduce Rashawn McDonald to your world and let you know I'm a fan. And you're a special young lady.
2: Thank you, sir. That means a lot. I I very much appreciate it. I am honored to sit in this space. You have interviewed and had conversations with some of the most phenomenal people uh, in our community. And so it is such an honor for me to be here. And I They cannot thank you enough. I'm very grateful and appreciative. Well, we'll
1: talk soon. Like I said, this world is not going to change. Hopefully it's not by 2020, like 2020 was, but we still have a COVID-19 out there. We still have issues on how Black people are going to accept forms of vaccination because again, you know we're going to last even though we were overtly affected or still being overtly affected by COVID-19. But more importantly, January 20th is going to change another lane. We had, you know, President Obama, when he came in, you know, they blocked a lot of the things that he wanted to do. And he still gets shaved because they feel like he didn't do enough. But that's because people didn't know how Congress worked or how the Senate worked. But that's with right. Joe Biden having a 50-50 in the Senate, we already know, guess who can break that tiebreaker? A black woman. Come that's on it. now. Come on now. <laughs> Thank you for coming <laughs> on the show, my friend.
2: Thank you for having me. God bless and have a great weekend.
1: And you talk. we talk to you soon. If you want to hear more Money Making Conversations, please go to moneymakingconversation.com. I'm with Sean McDonald. I am your host.